The rest of us will read from Mark. Please stand out of reverence for God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came in and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you are newer to Trinity and you don't know me, my name is Nick Polico, and I'm an associate pastor here, but my job is actually to serve at the Redemption Church, which is uh, in Palos Heights. It's an extension of, of Trinity. And I get to be up here occasionally to preach to you this week. Jeff is out of town. But I have to run out the door the moment the service is over to get down to to Palos to preach there. So that's why I'm not usually sticking around socializing. It's not because I don't want to talk to you, but because I have to get down there. So we've been looking at these final moments in the ministry of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion. And... The, the, the sort of temperature in the city of Jerusalem has been getting hotter and hotter as the encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders have grown increasingly intense. And so we're going to look at this passage today, zeroing in in particular on this little story about the widow who gives her last two copper coins into the offering box. So as we, as we do this, let's pray and ask for God's help. It seems, Lord, insignificant on the face of it to spend these moments trying to focus upon a seemingly insignificant gift from an insignificant person millennia ago. But we pray that since you have included this in your word, that you would give us the grace intended for us in this text this morning. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that I mentioned to you once before 
um, a few months ago that in the last several years, I've had some pretty significant problems with money. And when I say problems with money, I don't actually mean that I've had financial problems. Like the point is, is not that God has failed to give me and my household everything we need and more. I just mean I've had a problem in my heart related to money. And it has been surprising to me as I've seen this emerge in my life. Because when I was younger, and um, Jennifer, my wife, and I were always sort of moving toward like full adulthood, you know, when we were in our 20s and I was in seminary and we were sort of always looking to the future. Our finances were really tight just because of our station in life, young couple, getting an education. But it didn't bother me because I, I always felt like, well, but they're supposed to be tight. And one day uh, when I have a real job, you know, I just, I won't, we'll have everything we need and I won't have to worry. But then as we emerge into full adult life, in, into marriage, into having children, not that you're not a full adult if you don't have those things, it's just that's what full adulthood has looked like for me, the trajectory of my life. And as we began to like own a home and, and think about things like saving for retirement and wanting to have something to give to our children, I noticed that I actually am capable of having anxiety about money. I used to sort of, not exactly pat myself on the back, but sort of feel like, wow, the Bible gives so many warnings to, to ensure that we don't love money, that we don't worry about money, that we're not devoting our lives to the pursuit of money. And thanks be to God, this is one temptation that I just seem to be immune to. But it turned out it's not that I was immune to it. I just hadn't yet been in the right circumstances for that latent struggle to emerge in my life. And so I, in part, want to focus on the, the widow and her offering because there are a number of places, many places actually, where Jesus talks about money. And so it's good for us to zero in and give our attention to some of our Lord's teaching about money. And this, this little account of the widow, it's easy to just sort of skip over. You know, if I'm totally honest, I've never given a sustained, extended consideration to this little account before this past week when I had to get a sermon ready on this passage, which I found to be an exceedingly difficult task, actually. And four of the first five books that I consulted about this text, books that are all about the gospel of Mark or about the gospels in general, four of the five actually skipped over those couple of verses and went right from what proceeds to what follows. And the one that did comment on them did so just helpfully, but really briefly. And it's easy to skip, I think, because at one point it just seems like sort of just this nice little almost sentimental story. Like, you can almost imagine it being on the evening news, like, and someone's cell phone video caught an elderly woman, a widow at the temple, putting her last two copper coins into the treasury. Nancy, isn't that something? It sure is, Jim, an example of generosity we can all follow. Well, when we come back, Storm Team will tell you what to expect from the weather this weekend, and it was opening day. How did the Cubbies and the Sox fare? And just sort of like a, aw, and then move on with life, kind of a moment. That's what this story sort of feels like if we just glance over it. Isn't that sweet of her, this dear old lady? That's cute. But then, if we look more closely... Another problem emerges that makes it easy to just glance over, and it's not that it seems too just irrelevant or, or just sort of sentimental, but 
like too extreme? Like Jesus speaks these words of condemnation against at least some of those, not everybody, but some who are giving out of their abundance, and then speaks this word of commendation about this woman who gives her two coins that equal a penny. And there arises, I don't know about you, but at least in me, sort of some like incredulity, some resistance, like, Jesus, if I only had one penny, and that was literally all that I had, giving it up wouldn't be that big a deal. You could earn that back in probably 30 seconds worth of begging outside the temple. Like, so what? So, I mean, are you calling me to actually give away everything I have? That doesn't seem likely or doable. And honestly, if I give away even a portion, it seems like it costs me more than her. I'm not saying I'm right in my arguing with Jesus. I'm just saying that's what sort of arises in me. And so I want to invite us to, nevertheless, to be curious about this woman and about the unique attention that Jesus gives to her and to ask how it is that this little tale speaks to the struggle that I have and that every single one of us has with money. Struggle not necessarily that implies we don't have enough of it, but the struggle of being anxious about it, of being stingy with it, of building our life inordinately upon the pursuit of it, whatever it might be, it is something. Every single one of us struggles with money. So let's look at this story again, and let's see first that this is not just a sort of sweet, sentimental story. I want to invite you to sort of imagine the scene in Jerusalem. This is an intense scene. Thousands of pilgrims have descended upon the city to celebrate the Passover, the great feast celebrating God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And this is a historical moment in which the Israelites are living, the, the Jews are living under Roman oppression, and they are wondering, when is the Messiah going to come and deliver us? And not only when will that happen, but which group of Jews will be vindicated by the Lord when he sends that deliverer? Because there's these various groups and various sects and various uh, attempts at being the, the true faithful people of God who will be vindicated when God comes and perhaps the others are judged. And that accounts for a great deal of the spiritual fervor and zeal of the religious leaders who are so often actually condemned by Jesus. They're trying really hard, according to their understanding, to be the right kind of person whom God will vindicate when he comes. And Jesus has been getting in these heated debates and confrontations with them. He is just, we've been told uh, earlier in the passage, he has asked a group, it says throngs, great, a great throng of people who are hearing him gladly. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What is happening there is that Jesus is actually challenging the biblical interpretation of the biblical experts who don't have a sufficient understanding of the fact that the Messiah will not only be a son of David, but the Lord of David. And so this itinerant 
rabbi who didn't come up uh, through the, you know, approved system of leaders is challenging. These people who are conspiring to kill him, it's incredibly tense. And then he speaks this word of condemnation against the scribes who love to give so they can be praised for giving. And actually says they will receive the greater condemnation. Their giving to the temple is going to be part of what they are judged and sent to hell for. This is dramatic. So then when he draws his attention to this widow and commends her, it's part of this scene where Jesus is implying that he is the Messiah, that under all of his enemies are going to be put under his feet, and that those enemies include the religious scribes, the Bible scholars who are all over the place listening to this teaching. And immediately after this little account of the woman, he goes on to talk about the coming judgment on the temple and to give this discourse that many commentators call the little apocalypse. And so that just, that just means this is a cap, all that is just to say this should be a captivating and intriguing scene for us. One with that is clearly significant. So what do we, what do we do with this though? Like what is God trying to do in us with this account of this widow who gives her last two copper coins. And that's really part of a larger question of like, what is Jesus trying to do in a lot of the passages about money that seems so extreme and so hard to wrestle with? Like when he says to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and then come follow me and you'll be complete. Or when he says, give to everyone who asks of you. Like, what do we do with these extreme statements about money that Jesus gives? I want to first just acknowledge or, or at least draw our attention to, I think, two things we should not do with such passages, including this one. First, we, we can't overly spiritualize them, meaning we can't say, well, it's clear from reading the rest of the Bible that it's, it's not a universal command that we sell everything we have and give it all away. So this isn't really about money. This is just about, you know, kind of having faith. And of course it is about more than money when Jesus talks about money. And of course when Jesus talks about money, he's talking about money insofar as it is an indicator of how we are relating to God. But we can't, you know, we can't divorce his, 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 his teaching about money from money itself. So we can't, we can't hyper-spiritualize. The way we relate to God is like, a, or, or we relate to money, serves as an indicator light, so to speak, for how we are relating to God. But while we don't want to, you know, over-spiritualize what Jesus says about money, we also can't sort of universalize it, as I already acknowledged. We can't say, Jesus commends this woman for giving everything she has into the offering box. So therefore, everybody, we've got an offering plate. I want you to get on your phones right now, consolidate everything you have into one checking account, and write a check for that amount and put it in the box. Because, you know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, you know, the great love chapter, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, 
but have not love, I gain nothing. You know, at worst, we could give more and more in a way that actually insults God by acting as though we could purchase his favor. So we can't, you know, we can't universalize this. So what are we supposed to do? What does it mean to engage in giving financially that is commended by Jesus? This is interesting for me to think about and probably for a lot of you because over the years, my giving to church and to other ministries has become something that like I don't even think about because I just have a check automatically sent out every month from the bank. And so it doesn't even really feel like a worshipful uh, endeavor. But what we have here are, are two different ways to give, one that Jesus condemns and one that he commends. And so I just want to look together at what giving that is commended by Jesus looks like in this passage. And what we see from this widow is, first of all, that giving that Jesus commends is just giving. It's giving that comes from a life of financial justice. Why is it that Jesus says the scribes will receive the greater condemnation? It is not simply because they are giving out of their wealth and aren't giving more. Jesus does say that the, the widow who gave all she had has given more than those who are contributing only some out of their wealth. But that's not the reason he condemns the scribes and says they will receive the greater condemnation. He says it's because they like to walk around in long robes, they like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. These scribes who brought some of their treasure to put toward supporting the work of the temple had gotten, had acquired those funds by defrauding the poor and the vulnerable. And God is not interested in receiving that sort of financial support, so to speak, for his work. I can remember a story that, um, a pastor I know named Stan Morton. He's a, a PCA pastor. He's now in Virginia, and he was the founding pastor of the church that I served in Pennsylvania, uh, before, uh, that our family served before we moved here. And Stan and his wife, Terry, they're in their 60s now. When they were much younger, they were involved in prosperity gospel churches, you know, churches where they were encouraged essentially to purchase God's blessing with money, Put more in the plate, put more in the plate so that you can secure God's blessing. And if you have a child born with a disability, as they did, or if you have financial struggles, which they did in their younger life, it's because you're not having enough faith and because you're not giving enough. So give more. And they remember being at a, um, an event where a very famous preacher living an incredibly lavish, luxurious life was speaking. And Stan and his wife could barely pay their rent, actually sometimes couldn't. And he was down, this was in the days where he actually carried cash on you. He went up to one of the sort of, uh, he says, henchmen <laughs> of the preacher and says, this is my last five dollars, but I want to sow a seed. That's the language used in that circle. 
And the guy scowled at him and snatched it out of his hand. And his wife, having nothing else to give, but feeling like she absolutely had to because of the pressure from this religious movement, took off her wedding ring and put it in the plate because it was all she had left to give. You know, and to support what? This, this lavish ministry. And I will tell you, if that man leading that ministry then were to go and give some of his funds to support some other work, it's hard to believe the Lord would be terribly interested. So giving that is commended by Jesus is giving that comes from a life of economic justice. Now it's, it's tax season, friends. So don't, don't smudge things trying to justify it in your mind. Well, if I keep more because I've hidden it here, I can then give more. The Lord doesn't want that sort of giving. Just giving comes from a life of economic justice. Secondly, just giving is giving that is sincere. Like it's giving for the sake of giving, not for the sake of being seen giving. Jesus points out that the scribes love being praised publicly for their religious activity. This widow's gift isn't noticed by anybody but Jesus, which means the the reason she's giving it is because she actually believes in what she's giving and wants to support the work of the temple. I remember being at a, uh, a banquet, an annual holiday banquet put on by a man who was incredibly wealthy probably the wealthiest person I've ever known personally. And I, I hesitate to tell this story, actually, and I won't say who he is, because um, I actually really like this guy, but I knew that this was a man who lived, I, I knew how he treated people. I knew how he treated the people who worked for him. And I also knew the sort of life he lived, which was just incredibly self-indulgent. And at this banquet, there was an annual tradition of giving a certain sum to a different charity every year. And as I would see this, it was hard, you know, it wasn't from a sense of contempt for this man, um, but it was hard not to think, this gift is just being given for the sake of ceremony and public praise. That's what it seems like, because this is not coming from a life of, of giving. Now, I say this because it was just sort of a, a glaring example, yet knowing how much I can use what means I have, it's not as extravagant as this man's life, to just want to live a life of self-indulgence. But, but giving that is, that is commended by Jesus is giving for the sake of, of giving itself and not for the sake of being seen to be one who gives. And the third thing we see about the sort of giving Jesus commends from this widow is that it's hopeful. It's hopeful giving. What do I mean by that? Do you remember the famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains the difference between giving in order to commune with God, the Father, and giving or doing any other act of righteousness in order to be seen? He says in Matthew 6.22, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, 
they have received their reward. So what is he saying? Jesus is saying that a person who gives or who engages in any sort of righteous activity or good activity for the purpose of being seen doing so has something in common with the person who is doing good simply for the sake of doing good. And that is that they are both doing so for the purpose of reward. But the person who gives in order to be seen giving, or the person who practices righteousness of any sort in order to be seen practicing righteousness of any sort, is doing so in order to receive a reward that they will get right now. The praise of others. But the other person is doing so in order to receive a reward that they are going to get in the future. Because it's just a transaction between them and God. And it's not a quid pro quo thing where they're buying God's favor, but they just know that God graciously, in his kindness and generosity, blesses obedience. And that means that the person who gives merely for the sake of giving has hope. Hope of a future reward. And that means that the person who's giving in order to be praised by others, the person who, you know, and maybe it looks just like fishing for compliments, doesn't have hope in that future reward. What was the hope that this widow must have had? Well, she was giving to the temple. So it means that her hope was in what the temple signified. And what is that? The temple is a place of sacrifice and of presence. The temple was a place where at this Passover feast that would be celebrated soon, there would be sacrifices signifying atonement, the forgiveness of sins, so that God could be present with his people. This was a woman whose gift signified that she believed in the sacrifice that God would provide so that he could be present with his people. And those whose gift was all about ostentation, all about display, all about blowing a trumpet so that they could be praised, means their hope was actually not in God's sacrifice or in God's presence. Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6 tells us, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he hath said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That means the way to be free from the love of money and to be content with what we have is to be confident that God will never leave me or forsake me. The entire story of the Bible can actually be told as a story of temple, of sacrifice and presence. God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden, which is essentially to, fu- to function as a temple, a place in the midst of the creation where God's presence would dwell in a special way. And they were meant to expand the blessings of that place throughout the creation. But in turning from God in sin and becoming estranged from him, God had to come and to atone. And he eventually chose Israel to be his special people. And the temple in the midst of Israel was meant to be like a new garden, so to speak. 
a place of sacrifice and presence. And now Jesus comes, and he comes as the one in whose body the sacrifice of all sacrifices, the sacrifice that all previous sacrifices were merely arrows pointing to, will take place. The one in whose very body the presence of God dwells. And so the way we find freedom from the love of money and the freedom to have generosity is to be people of of hope. So three things I want us to kind of take away from this really practically. They won't be as long as the last three things. This was, by the way, this was maybe the hardest sermon I've ever prepared on this little passage. Because, as I said, it's, just, it's not obscure because it's uncommon or because we haven't read it a hundred times, but because we just tend to glance over it and not to know what to do with it. So what do we do, you know, really concretely? What does this tell us about our Lord in ways that should shape our life? First, Jesus, Jesus notices the gifts of the lowly. The gifts of the lowly. He notices. This is a beautiful thing about Jesus. We're told that there's a great throng hearing him gladly. There is a fever pitch of religious activity happening. Nobody is paying attention to this, this humble woman. And Jesus notices. You know, I uh, used to work at—it was a loosely faith-based organization, so all the residents, the clients, were from some sort of Christian background, but for an agency that took care of adult men with disabilities. Um, And, you know, they had disabilities like Down syndrome and cerebral palsy, and they kind of varied in their ability to speak and communicate and, you know, how functional they were and how much they could care for themselves, but they all needed some sort of support. And some of these people— had the most beautiful faith in Christ that I've ever seen. One of them, he's, he's probably um, with Jesus now because he was an elderly man at the time. His name was Paul, and he was in his 70s. And, um, you know, he was a guy, he, he wasn't severely disabled. You know, he could converse with you, but he would never have been able to, you know, manage his own finances or his own, you know, his own uh, care and that sort of thing. But, you know, he would always ask me, Nick, how's Jennifer doing, my wife? And if I said, well, she's a little stressed out. It's, you know, final exams because I was in college at the time working. He would say, oh, we better pray for her. And right there he would say, dear heavenly father in heaven, just pray that you, it's always how he started praying, dear heavenly father in heaven. And he would pray for her. Jesus sees the prayers of such people. He hears them. That means even, you know, for you who are children, who are young, do not think that when you grow up and learn more and can do more, that that is when you might contribute meaningfully to the life of the church. Like, there is a calling upon you right now to contribute. The grown-ups in the room need you to bring your gifts to bear upon the body of Christ for the good of the entire church. Jesus sees the gifts of the lowly. Jesus, you know, maybe just one of these things will land on you in particular. Two more. Jesus notes the oppression of the lowly. You know, he sees that this is a woman who is a widow, and he sees that there's actually a systemic injustice going on in which the religious leaders are devouring widows' houses. 
I searched really hard to try to find specifics of what sort of system this was, and I could only find, you know, questionable results. So instead of going into sort of like speculation, the point is that somehow there was an economic system in place in which the religious people were making themselves rich in part on the backs of the poor and the vulnerable. And Jesus sees it. And the reason I mention this is because it is so easy to see the corruption in the world, to see the injustice, to see the harm that comes on the vulnerable, and to ask, where is God? And the answer is, he is watching. He is in kindness, giving an opportunity for repentance for those who are oppressors. But he says to such people, they will receive the greater condemnation. He is reserving wrath for them. He is not indifferent. And the final thing is, is just that, you know, I, I kind of started by talking about my own struggle with money. Whatever your struggle with money is, Jesus gives us the most foundational solution for it. And that is hope. I'm not saying that we don't, you know, if you have actual economic trouble that, we, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to negate the importance of financial planning and, and whatnot. But our most important struggle with money, as diagnosed by the good physician, is our tendency to rely upon it, to crave it, to hoard it, to feel anxiety about it, to never sense that we have enough of it, or some variation of such things. And Jesus comes and tells us, no, your deepest problem is that you don't have adequate hope. You don't have adequate hope that I will never leave you or forsake you. And so kind of the big kind of coming in for a landing, maybe single takeaway, as we journey through the season of Lent, which among other things is time for self-examination, is to ask ourselves, what is our money problem? You know, how does a struggle with money particularly take shape in my heart and your heart? And to take the opportunity to listen to that problem, to, to, or to look at it sort of like an indicator light in a car, and to ask, how is that problem with money pointing me toward the need to more fully embrace the hope that I have in Christ? Because that's what he wants for us. We have the opportunity, and it's, uh, it's fitting after we hear God's word preached, to bring our sins before God in confession. And when we do that, we're coming before a merciful God who is willing to receive us, to forgive us, to heal us, and to restore and renew our hope. So I want to invite you uh, to join together with the community confession of sin, which is on page 8 in your worship bulletin. In the midst of this, there'll be time for silent confession. So let's join our voices together in confession of sin. Our Lord and King, we confess that in our hearts, in our minds, and with our hands, we have disobeyed you. We have failed to give you the honor and worship that you deserve as our King and as our God. We have bowed before idols of our own making and served the creature rather than the Creator.
deliver us, O Lord, and forgive us only by the blood and merits of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, lift your eyes and hear this good news of God's grace from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, in Jesus Christ, our mighty King, our sins are forgiven. Our enemies of sin and death are defeated by his death and resurrection. Thanks be to God.